Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Well, this week has been another tough one for leftists in Canada. I know a lot of you out there feel as though you don't have a political home. And in terms of electoral politics or partisan politics, you're absolutely right. The NDP has, again shown us for who they are. And I think a lot more people are listening this time. The expulsion of MPP Sarah Jama by the Ontario NDP and the complete lack of courage by the feds around Palestine have been real blows to those who still held hope in the party. But I don't want you to despair. And I certainly don't want you drifting over to the Greens or heaven forbid the Liberals. Because it's all part of the same game. Just different colored jerseys. The kind of change that we are out there advocating for does not come from delicately navigating through colonial institutions, from playing their games. Influencing electoral politics does not require you to be a part of them, to legitimize them. We've had over 70 episodes at this point with so many different ways to apply political pressure from the ground up in spaces that are mutually created and beneficial in communities we've built towards true purpose. So although Gaza is still very much on our mind, we want to make sure that we continue to bring you ways to organize, to mobilize, and to fight back. And that's what this episode is. We recorded this almost a month ago now. It's a great discussion with two activists from Ground Up Waterloo. It gives you some real practical tools to engage in community defense and some advice on how to create networks between your community groups and organize labor in your area. These two things are critical in not just responding to what's happening around us, the chaos, frankly, but also to move forward together and focused on a common goal, whatever that is. Let's get to the interview so we can get to work. Right. Welcome, folks. Ramsey, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Certainly. Um, so my name is Ramsey Abdi. I am a local activist. I'm involved with my union. I'm an elementary teacher, so I'm involved with EDFO. I'm also involved in my local labor council. And on the community front, I'm very active with a local group called Ground Up Waterloo. You're one of those labor activist types, yeah? I am. All right. David, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Howdy, folks. I'm David, pronouns they, them. Uh, and I am, um, a couple of years ago, some friends and I, we founded this grassroots organization called Ground Up Waterloo Region, and we've been organizing with them on many different fronts since. Um, I also support the Unsheltered Campaign, which is a local homelessness advocacy group as well. So... You folks caught my attention, particularly Ramsey did first. Sorry, David. <laughs> but it was, you got a little bit of airtime there at Ford Fest. So that was in your neck of the woods. Normally, Torontonians have the joy of being able to protest at Ford Fest. But 
they held it out your way, maybe hoping there wouldn't be so much resistance, I think. You made sure that wasn't the case alongside other people. Ramsey, you you particularly got a little bit of access to Ford. And reading the ground up Waterloo Twitter account in the bio is talking about holding politicians accountable. So you don't mean at the ballot box when you say this, right? Like the kind of work that ground up Waterloo does is a little bit more, shall we say, in your face activism. Can, is that an accurate description? And if not, tell me more about the organization. Well, uh, let's see. We have a, a couple different ways to go here. Uh, with Ford Fest, uh, it was actually kind of ironic that he chose Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, when he came to town last year, uh, there was actually a similar protest, a little bit smaller, but it was organized by the Ontario Nurses Association. Um, that was in the middle of a big kerfuffle he was having with them. And uh, they put a call out to the community to come out and support them, and a lot of groups did. Uh, so it was kind of interesting when he came back. And we were very well prepared for him. Um, the Labour Front, uh, through Labour Council, we organized, and we got a whole bunch of people together. And the Ontario Health Coalition has a, a Grand River um, uh, chapter, which they used, and they were able to round up a lot of their healthcare-related allies and advocacy groups. And there's also the Grand River Environmental Network, which was there. And we actually reached out and connected all three to make sure that all three groups were there to hold him accountable for his treatment of labor, uh, particularly education, his mismanagement of healthcare. And of course, we're in the middle of the entire Greenbelt scandal and how he's kind of destroying the green parts of the province. So it was really a, a very intersectional thing where we we all were kind of very upset. And he handed this opportunity for us to come out and air our grievances. Were you just we salivating and, at the chance? Because this is peak Greenbelt time, right? Ford Fest was a few weeks ago now, but this was right when everyone was in fever pitch mad. And uh, I would have had real fun ha organizing this. David's even smiling at, at us getting to talk about it again. I, I think everybody had been waiting for it. Um, educators, um, we've been dealing with all kinds of nonsense in terms of how he's been treating schools and education unions, particularly in negotiations. Um, we're seeing, seeing some other issues, and Ford fed right into this in terms of the, the demonization of educators and what we do to try and support marginalized communities. Uh, right now, particularly our, our 2SLGTBQ community. And, uh, you know, for us, it, it's really important where we're there and we want it to be seen. On the labor front, uh, he's been attacking unions. Uh, and so we were able to come together uh, on the labor side and, and kind of round up people. It's also very convenient right now because we're in the middle of a by-election here in Kitchener. And we have a very progressive riding here. Um, we had a, an NDP MPP, and we have a Green MP. And we are a, a fairly leftist community. We, we want change. We want positive change. 
And so we were able to get people out from both of those campaigns as well and bringing forward a lot of the other issues that they wanted to talk about. Um, you know, I talked about those three, but there were also groups out there for universal basic income. There were groups out there for um, Ford had recently or in the past, he, he'd gotten rid of some rules around uh, animal cruelty, right? Uh, we had our local, very recently, we actually started up a local acorn chapter to help protect tenants, right? And the affordability crisis is a huge thing. That's not a labor thing. That's not a healthcare thing. That's not an environmental thing. That's people just struggling to survive under Ford. And we were able to bring all these groups together. And uh, there were a couple of clips there. You know, there was my clip there, but you probably also saw the clip when he pulled up in his uh, SUV and the police were trying to get him in. And we just had 150 people just walk into the middle of the driveway and say, like, no, that's not happening. Like, we people laying down on the road. Like, it was Gandalf style. Like, you <laughs> shall not pass. I can only appreciate how much that would have been like if I were there. But I promise you, being able to watch that on Twitter when you couldn't go to Ford Fest was wholly satisfying. And I, I was so happy to share that clip around because the reactions it got from people... I think was really important, right? That resistance is pushing back and the optics of the police kind of sort of trying to get them in um, is obviously very educational for folks to see. So yeah, though Ford Fest did provide a lot more clips uh, for our particular cause than I think it did photo ops for him. I mean, that's an entire PR stunt that... It's it makes me mad to think because it happens in every community. Ford Fest is the big one, but we all have barbecues and stuff held by these conservative and people. You're lucky you don't have to be subjected to this in your progressive riding. But I do. And they're full of Canadian flags and they're really obscene for the most part. And they seem to to go off with impunity. You listed a whole bunch of reasons to hate Ford and the gang. And still, you know, I get really kind of irritated at the idea that they they feel safe enough to parade like this isn't to subject them to violence, but they should be really uncomfortable around the working class, the way that they're treating us. And sometimes they're celebrated like in my community, they're invited to the yearly gala for the food bank, the two conservative representatives here. And one is heavily featured. Carolyn Mulrooney is usually like her children are up there dancing and she's like essentially the guest of honor. And the disconnect there makes me angry. So when we see acts of resistance like this, even some of the, the smaller ones, you know, it just it's a reminder to them that we're not going to sit down and take it. And it emboldens other people who want to say the same thing, but, you know, it's not the safe space to do it. You'd be the only person hollering at them. You know, when you start to even bring pairs of people to this and you start to really you see the wave. David, do you want to tell that story from a grassroots perspective? So labor got organized. They've got lots of reasons, right? Ramsey talked just a, a fraction of the attack on workers that would justify local labor councils gearing up. But... The grassroots movement, getting people involved in that and getting them mad enough to act, it's its a little bit different. Yeah, well, and I think um, like the Ford Fest event 
kind of demonstrates some of what are, um, I guess, the tactics and thinking at the grassroots level in Waterloo Region in terms of um, really at this moment trying to make opportunities for everyday people to access action, like access political action. People who might not know, you know, like they might not have a connection to a union. They might not be a member of a political party. They might not understand those kind of pieces, those bigger infrastructures, but they have lots of feelings about things going on. I mean, there were so many... So many of the groups that Ramsey was talking about are grassroots groups. Like a lot of the stuff around the Green Belt was grassroots, a lot of the stuff around animal rights. The Acorn group is very grassroots um, based locally. And then there was just people who were upset and looking for a way to get involved. And so when I think of how Ground Up tries to position ourselves in this landscape, it's to try and help be an access point for people who are feeling frustrated and don't know how to get involved. And so it's we try and be very accessible in that way so that people can understand, okay, these are actions, this is a place you can go, and these are how you can go to that place. And then when you're there, you're gonna start making the connections. And meanwhile, at the same time, behind the scenes, like me and Ramsey are making connections between grassroots groups and um, and more established labor groups or um, kind of political structures. Um, and so I think we have this very um, kind of network mentality here where we are trying to really allow ourselves to be loose and open enough that we can build these relationships and we can act together quickly. Um, and I think uh, that was very important. But I will also say like specifically for the main, one of the main campaigns that Ground Up has been focused on for the past while is this horrendous um, kind of Christo fascist attack on school boards and on our education system. We've been following this for over a year and a half now um, at every school board meeting. Uh, and so that was something that was very important to see at Ford Fest because what we saw at Ford Fest was Doug Ford taking that campaign and making it part of the provincial conservative party platform. And so it was, I think, a very concerning element of what we saw that day. But I also think, you know, having all that coalition of people be there to witness that was also very important because, I mean, right afterwards, then we had um, the million march for Canada parents' rights terrorism moment, right, where they were just terrorizing our streets. Um, and so I don't think we would have had, this, had the same support in the following week if we hadn't had that coalition experience Doug Ford jumping on those talking points and realizing that, oh, this is now like where mainstream Canadian conservatism is heading. Yeah, I think for some people, these the protests that we saw last week that you just referenced and the attacks on school boards, because most of these happened outside of school board buildings, seem new, seem revived. People, But we were absolutely expecting it. Folks just need to think back to the last time kids were in school. Like I have kids in school, so the summer is like this different entity. And this is just a continuation of what we saw of heavy runs to the school boards by anti-trans people, right? That those were heavily contested for a reason. Like this was expected. And then Ford making that announcement, knowing what was coming, was just such fuel to that fire. So that must have been disheartening to be at that and witness that. And I understand I'm glad that you're drawing kind of a positive that at least everyone was there to see that it got a lot of exposure, which is good and bad. 
But I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of making the connections between labor and grassroots, because we all have local unions near us. And I think quite often, sometimes you get small community groups, like you're talking about the animal rights groups, and there'll be some issues that are a little bit harder to sell to labor than others, perhaps, but they mobilize and they understand the value of labor partnership, but have no idea how to obtain it. It seems inaccessible, labor with a big L, like it's a really huge, powerful entity that moves as a monolith, right? Because how each labor council works or how each local works is not necessarily readily known to people who aren't unionized. So can Ramsey, I'm going to go to you first. Can you talk about the technicalities almost, like how to start to connect to local unions and how specifically grassroots groups can start to make access to big L labor? Yeah, um, <clears throat> absolutely. So um, I'm actually going to go off a little bit here. Um, a concept I like to refer to uh, is capacity. And we all have issues that we are very passionate about or issues we're very involved in, but we all have a, a limited capacity for how much we can do and how much we can act. But there are many other issues where we say, yeah, I support that and I wish I could do something and I wish I knew more about this. Um, and I think a big part of what Ground Up has done was bring in advocates from different areas or different groups or different passions where we all came together and we are all like-minded and we are all progressive. We all want better for the community and for each other. And that really kind of enabled that. Now, going back to the labor side, I'm actually very fortunate to be in a very progressive labor council. And so that brings together our, our various unions. But uh, a lot of this kind of went back to uh, a change in leadership, and we went and we went to the the CLC in Montreal in the spring, and there was definite definitely a shift, recognizing that um, there was a need for more uh, advocacy and um, more activity, and what could we bring back? Uh, the Ontario Federation of Labor had a campaign, and they regularly have campaigns. Um, but the campaign they are using this year is called Enough is Enough. And as a labor council, we sat there and we said, okay, you know what? We can have this campaign, which is just about the labor issues. But if we're saying enough is enough, we need to reach out and involve those community groups and get more voices involved um, because the issues are bigger. And when we had our Enough is Enough kickoff event, that was the goal. The goal was to bring in the community and was to bring in those groups. And our vice president reached out to a number of different organizations. And we had that and it was a big success. And we looked around the room and we said, who are the voices who should be here but aren't here? And how can we improve that? Because we want it to be a whole. We, we want like complete community involvement here. And that led to our May Day event, which was a big success. And then, again, over the summer, it's a bit of a slow time. 
but what can we do to kind of re-engage with that? Um, Ground Up actually came and, and gave a presentation. Uh, one of the things we do at Labor Council is we try and bring in different community groups each week to kind of raise the awareness within the representatives of labor about what are some of the other things going on. And the people who are there can take that back to their various organizations and say, hey, if you want to learn more about Ground Up, here you go. If you want to learn more about the Ontario Health Coalition, here's the contact. If you want to learn more, this past month, we had a great presentation by Anishabeg Outreach, which provides services to uh, members of our local Indigenous community, and they're actually trying to roll that out even wider. Um, just to support that that community. And it's a lot, something that a lot of us wish we saw more of, but don't necessarily have the connections or the resources to do. But what we can do is we can support those organizations. One of the things that we've been critical on the show here is unions not holding the line for things outside of their bargaining agreement. The almost kind of general strike in Ontario was a kind of a prime example of the connections made between grassroots and labor was done quite quickly, mobilized local actions across the province, um, but never did it include anything beyond the single kind of demands of not taking away the right to strike from that particular local. And that that's that power seemed to have kind of faded i'll be honest you talk about enough is enough and we were really excited about that that built for quite a few months but it never reached the fever pitch that the that came around those education sector workers or perhaps that came around the green belt but we really did see it come back to the counter protests, again, we keep going back to. So, David, knowing that and being a grassroots organizer, I know none of this is news to you that like getting disability issues on the docket for labor rights, even climate issues are can be a really tough sell because, you know, they're fighting for their workers rights and, and there's capacity issues on what they can do. But it's frustrating because, you know, the power that exists there. So how did it feel as a grassroots organizer to see that kind of mobilization happen, even if it was for a bit of a defensive position, right? We would like this to be on the offense once or twice, right? Make some gains rather than holding off bigots alone, right? That's exhausting. But it happened. It's a it's a huge positive. What did you draw from all that? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, we, we wouldn't have been able to have as, um, I don't want to say successful because like there are many people who were very traumatized by what happened, but as um, maybe impactful an event without labor's help. And I think, I guess what I think to grassroots organizers, you know, there is some structures within labor. There is a bit of a labor mentality that can sometimes act as a barrier, but I think there is huge benefit to us as grassroots groups being in relationship with labor, being loud, <laughs> loud in labor's face, building those um, uh, connections because labor has things that are very useful for us as grassroots organizers. For example, it is far easier for labor to get access 
to valuable organizing materials, like, you know, safety vests, sound equipment, you know, those kind of things that are really needed to have a strong event. If you don't, like, and labor can get that stuff so much easier. And most labor council meetings are, like, publicly accessible, or uh, it's not that hard, actually, to get into a labor space. And in where your grassroots causes, usually there is a labor space labor space somewhere nearby in terms of like whether you're at the university there's tons of labor stuff at the universities if you're thinking about public education there's labor stuff there if you're thinking about poverty and, and homelessness there are labor groups that are connected there um, and so i think there's immense value in building those relationships and and i think that's what we you know i don't when when enough is enough was happening you know i tried my best to mobilize our grassroots groups to participate in that but i wasn't super stressed about this process campaign being you know the thing that's going to bring us success because when i think the thing that's going to bring us success is us as relationships walking forward to each of these battles that are like more, far more immediate in terms of what we're seeing at the school boards, for example, or and then now that morphing into this new conservatism, right? So I think I see the value of the relations we built and now that has come back to us in terms of when we were trying to organize this counter protest, we knew we could go to labor and be like, we're trying to get some of the logistics sorted. Can you help? We need to mobilize some people. Can you help? We need to amplify this message further. Can you help? And labor, because we had been in relationship for a while, it was very easy for those things to move ahead. And so um, I think there is very much value in that. Uh, and you don't ha we don't have to be in lockstep as grassroots and labor. We can be in relationship and collaborate on stuff and also be like, some things, those are labor things and I'm not gonna jump in on that and that's okay. And sometimes labor is not gonna be, you know, in the exact same politic because also grassroots groups have many diverse politics, but being able to at least have the relationships and the understanding to collaborate, especially on these kind of key fronts that we are seeing um, is very helpful. Absolutely. You hit so many important points there, but I especially love the reference to the borrowing of equipment. I can relate so well. Shout out to QP905. I don't know how many megaphones and tables and they even let me use their kitchen. And yeah, no, sometimes you even forget as an organizer because you have someone really reliable in labor that can help you out. But endless, endless resources that you just can't scrounge up sometimes, especially with short turnover, the way that we have to respond often in small community groups. So <laughs> yeah, that, that and the greater scheme of things, right? So keeping those relationships building, a lot of these labor councils even have Zoom links to a lot of their meetings. So you can be a fly on the wall first, see what they're like understand who you probably need to talk to or email in order to get on the docket, you know, to get on the agenda. And you don't have to be a union member to influence labor, right? Um, so I love those examples, David, that you gave kind of real practical inroads that folks can make. Do you see any other big issues? Like, I don't always want to be on the defense. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. And we will do it. But can either of you think of an issue in Ontario, perhaps, that we could get that same level of cooperation? Because, you know, ground up is, as you describe, a real broad coalition in itself. And even the needs of different locals and labor and their politics are very broad. But other than 
what we've just seen, can you kind of envision anything else that we could or should be mobilizing around? I mean, oh, I think as Ramsey mentioned uh, earlier, like we just got our ACORN helping doing tenant organizing locally. And I think there is a lot of value that can come from more collaboration of different parts of our ecosystems on tenant issues or housing issues. Um, because one that is like what is setting so many people into a state of vulnerability and is a big pain point for a lot of people who we are trying to reach on so many other causes. So it's, I think it's a great way for us to show up and essentially be teaching a whole new generation of people how to organize. It's like meeting them where they're at. Um, but also like when I think of this kind of what I'm seeing as this new conservatism that is really borrowing from like it's stealing from far right grassroots movements. I'm like, we can replicate that in our own way in terms of getting a new progressivism that is borrowing from um, our movements to meet that need. And also almost like to intercept. Cause when you look at, when I looked at the people who were um, at that rally, I mean, uh, in terms of the Millie March for Canada, a lot of them are the same people I see who are really experiencing huge issues on cost of living, really experiencing huge issues around housing stability, really experiencing huge issues around uh, racism and access to many pillars of life. And so I'm like, if we can get ahead on those areas, I think there's a way to even intercept that this new conservatism that's moving because really... Um, uh, their people's like basic needs are like far closer way and a far easier way to actually get them to understand so many other aspects of our movement. One of the items I saw on your Twitter feed, I'm always going back to Twitter feeds. It's like so obvious. It's all I read sometimes. But you had a call out asking people for a book and you're talking about accessible ways to essentially politicize and mobilize people, Right for them to realize their collective power. But books have a real way of opening up people's eyes and kind of taking a book home to digest on your own and not in a reading group and not with anybody telling you anything can sometimes transform people. So tell me about the initiative you have around indoctrinating people with books. No, but you had, they love to say that about us, don't they? But it's absolutely about being critical. But tell me a bit about that initiative, because I think that's something that's so wholly accessible to anybody listening. Well, I, um, I can speak at least to the book, but then I also think it's like, Labor Council has been very helpful in pushing this campaign further as well. Um, when I think of so the book is that we're working on with right now is called Let This Radicalize You by Kelly Hayes and Miriam Kaba. And so some folks on Ground Up were like wanting to read it. And then we're like, wait, what if we just bought more and and then filled little libraries with them and then like seeded this into the community? And that's when then, because we have a diverse coalition of people within the Ground Up network, all of a sudden, it was like the university students were like, okay, we're going to get our our union on top of this. And I'm pretty sure, Ramsey, you got some connections too through this. So maybe you want to speak to that kind of seeding further. Um, I, I think the challenge is, um, even within the labor movement, um, union members 
um, come with very diverse political opinions. Um, as a whole, labor does tend to be a little bit more progressive, but we need to understand even within that, we will have people who want to take that next step. And a lot of organizations, I know mine, right, advertises itself as an equity-seeking organization. Um, so how do we provide those tools to the members to progress along that journey? And, and I think books, uh, as an educator, are a fantastic tool to do that. Uh, a lot of people don't know where to find the information. A lot of people don't understand our history in terms of the labor movement and the progress that we've helped to create. Um, so uh, for, for myself, when the opportunity came up with this book, it's like, absolutely, give me a couple copies and I'm going to get this out to my equity and social justice committee and I'm going to get this out to my status of women committee and I'm going to get this out to my political action committee and all of the members that I interact with in those various communities, hopefully they can fan it out as well and have people, you know, have that slight shift in their mindset and say, what more can I do or how can I do more differently? Uh, I love that because even all our communities, there's free libraries everywhere, even if you're talking about sending it to committees and people who know might absorb it really well but also just kind of leaving them rando in those little boxes that people put on their lawn that says free library, leave one, take one, and just like filling that up, you know, taking something, one of those murder mysteries out, replacing it with the book of the month. And I just kind of, that one really made me smile because I think, again, it's just really accessible way for people to radicalize other people. And I don't think that's such a bad thing. Well, and speaking of like, you know, the capacity that labor is, um, as an, like kind of a system has bulk orders much easier to do through with, with labor's help than just individual grassroots people. So it's been a really nice collaboration. Absolutely. And I can just see like passing on your own books and, you know, asking folks to forward on any copies they have or, but purchasing and supporting the author is obviously a good choice too. But yeah, the the labor resources are pivotal, but it also sends a very clear message when the two groups work together because nothing was quite as satisfying as seeing how much the right, the far right squirmed at the announcement that QP in particular would be joining the counter protests and the vitriol, unfortunately, that Fred Hahn was subjected to that, you know, he did not squirm away from, not even when he asked if QP aligned with Antifa. And I think that sends very clear message, even though it riles them up real bad. You know, like I saw someone going to do an investigative report on how all these groups are now working together. And it was like, we've openly been calling for this for eons. Like South America, we, on the, on the show, we did an episode, Lessons from South America, and the one lesson we drew from that is nothing of this is possible unless social movements are step-in-step step with labor, right? Not kind of as add-ons, you know, to bulk up the 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 numbers, but actual key players in this, the, a mass movement. And uh, so when it started to happen and they just started to lose their shit, you were just like, okay, yeah, this, 
This reinforces what we've been saying. It shows a positive example to people. So not only do they come with somewhat deeper pockets than grassroots organizations who literally have to find everything for free for the most part, you know, borrowing and whatnot. I think I have a tent from I never gave back to Opsu. I'm so sorry, you know, um, but <laughs> that's like my confessional. <laughs> I might edit that out. <laughs> but, you know, it's it, that messaging, that that visual, too, of the side by side step. Um, I still cringe when the politicians walk in, although it's important that they show a clear side, but it's just like giving them that photo op without any kind of tangible action when typically they just come along as players, right? They're not generally sending out emails to also ask their supporters to get on the line, but there are a few exceptions to that, but. No, I think that's actually an important distinction, right? Like labor in those counter protests showed up, made public statements and like got their member, like invited and called their members to show up. I mean, not a single government, not a single poli- like, you know, there might've been individual politicians there, but you didn't see like all of a sudden the green party of Canada all show up. You know, you didn't see the, um, the city of Kitchener, they just put out a statement. There was no, right. And so I think there's a huge distinction there that labor is actually modeling for other, even more inst- like bigger institutions that like, this is actually what solidarity looks like. And then institutions can and should be doing solidarity. Yeah, even cring- cringeworthy is quite often when you have these moments, the emails that do go out from the political institutions, we know what they say, right? You, you could help by signing this petition or by donating $50 by midnight. And there's a huge difference in the approaches there. So yeah, you got a big smile from me when you said like that that's a more of a model to follow. I would argue to say that the grassroots model is a model for labor to follow, which is then a model for politicians or at least leftist political entities to at least pretend to follow. But that's another episode. Well, I think that's something we're actually seeing within the labor movement is kind of that recognition that we do need to shift more to a grassroots model of organizing. Um, I think we see that a little bit in certain political parties as well. But within labor, it's very clear that we need that that grassroots organizing. We need those those conversations, those one-on-one conversations. We need people to feel um, heard. We need those voices to be amplified um because right now a big barrier for labor is engagement and we do see it you know great in some unions but not so much in others uh we saw um ossstf have their uh arbitration vote and uh you know i'll be honest it's very disappointing one of the things they were giving up was the right to strike. This is something that unions fight for um, and they're handing it over. And, you know, the vote was 78, 22, again, not overwhelming, but still very disappointing to see that, that high, but also the engagement, the number of people who actually voted in that was extremely low. Um, And it's like, did we ever get the final numbers? I mean, it was at 22% a few days before the vote closed or maybe just two days before the vote closed. And I don't think they released the the numbers, but 
that is really low engagement. That's like by-election in some places engagement. Right. You're you're asking union members if you feel, you know, that you should have the ability to choose your collective agreement or whether you want somebody else to figure it out for you. And I'll just ballpark this. 75% of them said, we don't care. Um, and to me, that's that's terrifying. We really need people to, to feel that, that passion and that engagement, um, especially when we see on the labor front, our rights being attacked. As a fellow education worker, union worker, I imagine that particular vote really upset you. Like I did a whole episode about it, so I'm not going to go off again. Uh, we called it binding teachers to arbitration. But one of the key points was that it really kind of left the other education workers out to dry, as well as it's really hard to contrast that to the mobilization that happened in the very same province around education workers, around their right to strike, not even a year ago. Or was it a year ago? COVID. I have no dates in my mind anymore. But No, it was last December. We were on the verge of a general strike because the government was trying to take away our right to strike and was trying to give us a contract that we could not vote on. And that was the line in the sand where we were willing to go all in. And we're here 10 months later and people shrug. Um, and, and, and for me, I'm, I'm a bit of a collective bargaining nerd. I'm actually on the provincial uh, ETFO standing committee for collective bargaining. So I, I take that as a big deal. I'm I'm there to try and represent all of the ETFO members and have that little bit of a a voice in the air of, of our executive and of our, our staff who are handling all of this. And I, I look around and I see members saying, you know, we don't care. Now, again, that's not my union. That's their union. But And a small fraction of that union. Right. I'm going to kid myself in thinking if everyone voted, the result would be different. But I I might be wrong. But we've gone on a, a bit of a tangent, although critical issues. But again, like I could really go off on this for a long time because that that did bother me. And as a bargaining unit member, I I feel you, man. That that really kind of says I don't have any faith in their ability to get us a good deal or our collective ability to mobilize. Um, but. Again, we- I, I think I think even taking the question to the members put out a very dangerous message. But again, perhaps we'll have that chat in another podcast. Well, yeah, no, again, like we did. And those are definitely all the positions that I took. It just it was as soon as it was introduced, it weakened everyone's hand. So I was never happy with the OSSTF elections in the first place. But OK, I'm going to completely transition. This is not going to be a smooth transition at all. (laughs) It never is sometimes. We go off on tangents, but that's how people talk politics because it's all connected, man. But there's one thing that around the community defenses that were put up last week and getting people to take baby steps into activism is you got to keep them safe. Our very first episode, I took the responsibility seriously. It was we keep us safe. I thought if I was going to encourage people to be disruptive, we would first give some basic tips and tools on 
how to do it safely without exposing you and your comrades to doxing, cops, harm, how to... And Ground Up Waterloo, in anticipation of what was going to happen last week, put out a few images that were just some basic safety tips for these counter rallies. There's two I want to talk about in particular and what it means, you know, why we do these things, because maybe not everybody agrees. The first one is not to photograph allies. David, why do you guys say people like those images, right? We like to see the really inspiring faces holding the line. Those are good shots. Why don't we take those? Yeah, I <laughs> I mean, I think what is important for people to understand, um, and we as grassroots groups who are really following these things need to help the people who, you know, are just trying to live their life and want to show up the day of to support, um, understand. Because, like, that far-right ecosystem runs, um, like, it runs on this kind of online content grift of, you know, um, and so at rallies, they are using, like, they their, their whole ecosystem exists on, like, taking our, our kind of defenses, our responses, and turning them into their own little outrage machine, turning it into things to fuel themselves, right? Fuel their own sense of victimization, fuel their own mockery they use a lot of. I mean, anyone who's been online knows, like, the... Obsession with cringe and all that kind of stuff. Those are weaponized in these far right spaces to keep them fueled. And the problem is that there are people in those spaces who are so, um, who become so, I guess, fragile from their indoctrination that they will use those, like they, they can then use that in dangerous ways in the sense of, I mean, even just a sense of basic online harassment, but also going to the lengths of like, calling people's bosses, showing up at people's houses, like creating, and these are things that are actually, do they actually are like, they try and keep track of who is at these events. There is a very insidious side to that kind of organizing. And so we are, we don't want to give them any fuel in that. And we don't want to put anyone in a position where they are at risk. And it is sad in a certain way because there are very valuable, they're like the idea of projecting joy and the idea of, wanting to invite other people into this organizing space. Like there is an accessibility thing that we lose when we aren't able to have, you know, take photos in that kind of way. But we also want people to be, to help people start to understand the actual, the level of risk that we are dealing with in terms of how this growing um, organizing is, is coming to. And so, that was really important is just to, it's, it's, I think it's most important actually just to start get people to think differently, to start realizing, Oh, like this, this movement is actually a real threat. Like it's an actual threat to like pe- queer and trans people, or, you know, um, I think of like many of the staff at the school board, like they've had terrible things happen to them because of how this movement is accelerating. And that's something we actually, as a community, need to start taking seriously. And this is a step to start educating you that you need to start taking that that seriously. Um, I think when I think of these tools in the, another way, in, the, in my way of trying to make this actually, like not just about protecting ourselves, but also into this idea of po- positive forward momentum is 
I mean, a huge part of our local grassroots organizing scene is abolitionism. And we every year we go to council to tell them you need to stop funding the police. They're draining and crushing all our resources um, and they are causing harm and violence to communities. Uh, there was literally an incident of police violence in our region just past week that was documented. It was very traumatizing. Um, but people don't understand, like they, they freak out. What, what, what do we mean? Like, if we don't have police, who's going to provide safety? And these defenses are our way of actually explaining to people, what is safety? What, what does safety look like? You know, and so this idea of us as community members showing up to create space between us as community members showing up to, like, like essentially shame and put, um, and, and uh, try and disrupt systems of hate, like, that is actually abolitionism in action. And that's what it like our world without police is a world where we have systems that do that. And if you were at any of these career defenses, you would have seen one that the police spent way more time policing the career defenses than they did the four million mark. And that was two because they were the police themselves were actively terrified of the four million march parents' rights groups. And it was a very like and so you can see that the police themselves are looking to grassroots organizers to understand safety themselves because they don't know how to provide safety in these situations. And so I think one, there is, this is a very real risk and, and we try and go to the most extreme so that you are protected from the most extreme, even though most likely the everyday person at a rally like this is going to be fine. But also we're doing this so that you can start thinking and learning and practicing what safety looks like so that you know, then, this is what like this is what the abolitionist future is going to look like. It's going to look like you knowing and trusting that your community has your back and that they know how to respond to protect you. If I can just jump in here, um, I think a lot of people, like you said, most people will go to these events and not experience anything, but the risk of the harm is absolutely real um, for us here in Waterloo, we, we had the attack at the university back in June, if you recall that. And one of the things that we did with Ground Up Waterloo was listen to the community where they said, we don't feel safe. We don't trust the campus police to take care of us. You know, we need to come together for healing. And we were able to facilitate that. And, um, you know, we when we organize, we have... Um, representatives who are the liaisons to work with, um, you know, law enforcement. But the reality is we try and manage it and, and tell them, like, you are not helping the situation. And uh, I, I think back to the, to the Million March, and it was, uh, there was a team of us, and we were, you know, very committed to trying to make sure that that space stayed safe. Um, unfortunately, you know, people say, oh yeah, everybody came, everybody went and it wasn't a big deal. Um, but there were actually five incidents with roaming groups who were trying to hunt down followers after the event had dispersed. Um, so we had five incidents that day. Thankfully we had members of our, our security team with them, uh, and everybody did get home safe. But, you know, the very next day we had, an attack on a couple of students at one of our local high schools. Um, the safety risks are very real. And so as a community grassroots or group, 
we take ensuring the safety of the people who come out very seriously as well. I just want to mention like the flip side of not photographing your allies. You guys mention it in your post. Sorry, you folks mention it in your post and it's not wearing anything identifiable. I also love how you add wearing masks because that now has a twofold purpose because COVID isn't over and it helps reduce your ability to be identified. And just another reminder, because I know there's a lot of people that are really angry and willing to do whatever it takes to confront these people. And we'll kind of get into that in a second. But your mentality may be, I don't give a fuck if they come after me. But they will then know your networks of friends. It's not just about keeping you, the individual, safe. And organizers, there's so many things, you know, go back and listen to that first episode that we need to do, like having marshals with high vis vis and training in keeping people safe and what that means and having liaisons so that not everybody is talking to, you know, the media or the police or, or whatever. There's actual tools that you need to do before you bring out masses of people to highly confrontational events. But it's, yeah, it's about keeping your entire network safe from all sorts of intrusions that I hope people don't need reassuring that they do actually happen. I think there's so many examples, particularly of female journalists and school board trustees like that have been amplified. It happens to all kinds of folks, but just for evidence sake, that have been documented that absolutely these steps aren't to scare people because that might be intimidating as a first-time protester. And that's what a lot of these counter-protests are going to be because this is angering a lot of people. These, these are people who have been willing to be on the sidelines for a while and now know that they got to hold the line. They've got to get out there. This is unacceptable. It's spurred a lot of people on both sides. That might be scary to be like getting all these instructions around your physical and your identification safety. And but it's such a necessity at this point. So I totally agree. Like it's sad, but necessary. Sorry, if I can chime in here, if the other side already knows who you are, it's a bit of a moot point. But if they don't keep it that way, um, you know, everybody knows who Fred Hahn is. Everybody knows. Um, he should still wear a mask so, if he's listening. Yeah, organizers, <laughs> have your rallies be masked. We had so, even with our rally being entirely masked. Absolutely. I got COVID. Several people still got COVID. So if you are organizing any rally, please mask up, protect yourself, and protect your uh, your neighbors. Thank you for that service announcement. I think we should have it on every episode. I think I probably do. People are probably so annoyed at this point, but I don't care. Um. Let's talk about that confrontation, especially emotions. That's what's getting a lot of people involved in any movement. You know, David, I think you said that earlier. It's it's usually what makes you spur into action, not logic, but emotion. And like we are seeing people hold up signs that we've seen. I don't even want to repeat it. That just make your blood boil. They're collectively making demands that would erase some of our community members. And literally, literally. You want to go out and you want to punch these people. 
right? That's what you're feeling. You're like, not fucking on my watch. You're not, you know, like you come near my kid's school, da, 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 da. You know, there are high level emotions. There's also only so much people can take when confronted, like the stories that came out from last Wednesday or last Friday at the North York school and countless other examples that I, you know, I know I'm missing and I apologize. Awful things being shouted at people. How, and one of your instructions speaks of a real non-confrontational approach about trying not to add fuel to the fire. Because I know a lot of folks worry about violence. Not the single acts of violence that we're talking about, but an escalation. A repeat of some acts that we've seen that are just fueled by hate. And a lot of people worry about stoking that fire. Some people aren't going to agree with that approach, though. Do you want to hit on that, on on the need to emphasize the need for a safe space in those counter-protests in particular versus the need to confront a bigot? Well, what I can say is that, um, like, ground up as kind of this, we had this very open, fluid network, and that allows us to collaborate with labor, but it also allows us to collaborate with like the anarchist punch a Nazi networks. Um, and, and I just wrote down punch a Nazi. <laughs> like I just wrote that as you said it, but Oh my. And so sorry for the interruption, but it's like, it's an, and it's important that we are like building relationships in both like in, in that space as well, because those networks who, I mean, Waterloo region has a long history of Nazis. Like it was in the nineties and early two thousands that it was the anarchist punch a Nazi crews that got the Nazis like out of our downtown. So like they have a wealth of knowledge about a very, like about that type of organizing. And, and it's important for us to be in relationship with them and communication so that we can actually be strategic in all actions. And so we talked <laughs> before with the uh, this rally about you know, what do we, what do we expect these, like, what do we, what's going to be the dynamic of the space so that we were all on the same page. There was flexibility within that flexibility for us to move, change directions, set up safety, like punch a Nazi, set up safety, but there was also flexibility for punching Nazis if that was needed. Um, But we don't want, like, that's one thing for the org. And so it's important for us to have that at the organizing level so that us as organizers beforehand have an idea of the frame of the event. And then at the event, we were constantly checking into each other to be like, okay, where is things at? But we really wanted everyone, the everyday people attending to have a far more constrained bucket because, because we like, you know, so that they have expectations on how, um, how to engage. So that it gives, it's a lot easier than for us to ma- manage the space and make those decisions on the fly of like, okay, if this is escalating to the next level, then we need for the people who are more vulnerable, we need to get them the fuck out of here and we need to create the systems in place for this new type of organizing. Like we had those kind of conversations beforehand, but we need the people and everyday people in the public to not be, you know, wow, uh, going, going rogue before we like without the organizers on board, being on board. And so that's why it's very important. You know, your organizers are going to have a safety plan, follow their safety plan and we're going to adjust as needed. If you are a punch a Nazi person, hold your, hold on to that because there may be a place for there is a place for that. But we need to like know you need to be working with 
like the community because what we are doing right is we are trying to collectively practice safety going back to what i was talking about like the abolitionist action like we are trying to actually practice safety and so it's not just about what you're feeling you're also thinking about the people around you and how do you organize with them and it became very clear at our at least the waterloo region um queer youth defense that the people we were um counter protesting were very willing to do violence we're very close to doing violence um and so that's why we were very then wanted that protect we wanted that guarantee that okay we know that this is a very violent group so that we need extra precautions for our folks so that we can protect them and make sure they're not getting into situations I'm going to have so many sound bites from <laughs> your answer to that question that are just <laughs> going to make so many people smile because what an inclusive approach <laughs> to this, because there is absolutely a place for everybody on community defense lines, but also remember there's 10 year old, there's kids there. There's families showing up to this because it is about protecting the kids from these bigots and, you know, larger issues, but yeah, that those are particularly tough ones. Maybe a defund the police rally would have a slightly different demographic, but these really are families coming out, you know, and it's a really tough way to organize as a grassroots because there's that fear of you will be responsible for an escalation or for someone getting hurt, even though that's not ever your intention. And everyone always needs reminding that it is the most marginalized people that typically face the police violence that ensues from an escalation or from the far right folks trailing off maybe in small pairs or by themselves afterwards. It's like predators. They will go after folks that they think that they can attack. So that's a huge responsibility for organizers who can't shy away from calling people out to do this, um, but certainly have a, a huge responsibility in keeping people relatively safe. But there's no guarantees. Like, this is a class war, a culture war, if you want to call it. It's not. It's still a class war, but we get it. Um, we've kind of, like, done an hour. That's typically our episode length. Obviously, the three of us could talk about a million things, <laughs> but like, is there anything that we didn't hit on or anything that you folks are up to you want to make sure everyone knows about? <laughs> well, I was just going to say like, just to make the connections, right? Like we had been following this movement from when it started just as harassing our school board a year and a half ago to now where it's being parroted by the provincial and federal conservative parties. So I think one just a like follow what's going on in your school boards because it is it's leading this new progressive uh this new um conservative movement right this new wave of conservatism and we can't just we shouldn't be surprised when we see it happening at that federal and provincial level because we are seeing it on the ground and so please be checking in on your school boards i think that's just very important because i think they're breeding a lot of, or the the movements around them not the, the boards themselves, but the people attacking them are, I think, seeding a lot of what we're and platforming and mainstreaming a lot of what we're seeing now move up through the political system. Thank you. Ramsey, do you have any parting thoughts? I have many parting thoughts. Um, 
I, I think what uh, what David says is, is very much true. We we look at what's uh, happening with Scott Moe. Um, That's the premier of Saskatchewan. It is, yes. And he wants to call back the legislature to use the notwithstanding clause to put in these things. Uh, we That was never the intent uh, of the rule to take away people's rights and put um, – marginalized youth at risk. Uh, that was never the intent of the law. And we need people uh, out there to to kind of stand up. We, we've seen our government here in Ontario try and use the notwithstanding clause a couple of times just to attack people's rights. And, and that's what it really is. Uh, our rights are under attack and we do need to, to stand up and to organize. Um, one thing we touched on a little bit earlier was that that collaboration piece and labor does have those resources and if you are a community grassroots group reach out to your labor council reach out to the local unions wherever possible it's not just the equipment that's available but if you would like some information about how to use different programs how to use different software um networking uh one of the big things we're trying to work on is set up um, flying squads to help respond to these hateful events. And that's very difficult at a, a grassroots level simply because of the resources. But that's absolutely something that labor can assist with because we have those tools and the technology to to get those things in place. And when we need a quick defense, they can mobilize that quickly. Um, so you forgot the mailing uh, again, lists, right? I, I, those mailing those lists. mailing lists—they <laughs> <laughs> don't uh, data mine for no but, reason. But not just that. Um, like we have like familiarity with getting those online petitions and things like that set up. Um, we often have a little easier access to politicians. Sometimes we have um, databases, and again, databases can be a little bit. Uh, depending on the topic, can be a little bit uncomfortable for some people in terms of handing over your personal information to somebody you don't know. But, um, you know, I'm I'm part of groups on Slack, on Signal, on um, WhatsApp, right? Like, there are all these different networks that these different groups use. And if you're not familiar with what the tools are and how to use them, reach out to labor because there will be somebody there who can help get that ball rolling for you. And just that act of reaching out is that first connection to, to building that stronger relationship with them. Yeah, I think folks would be surprised how many different committees that labor councils already have dedicated to issues that aren't necessarily labor issues, you know, worker issues. They are, I know, but that's a different discussion. So there might already be a response network for the green belt, for the community defenses around LGBTQ rights. So yeah, I, I love how we gave people kind of practical blueprints to engage with labor, but I really appreciate both you taking the time to sit down and hash this out, but also for doing what you do on the ground. Uh, we love getting especially smaller community groups on for the very reason that you frame your organization the way that you do because it makes it seem so much more accessible to make a difference. That sounds so cheesy, but you know what I mean. 
and it's not out of reach, right? Getting labor on your side isn't necessarily out of reach. Radicalizing people is not a formidable task always. So thank you so much. And we will make sure to link back in our show notes all kinds of ways to keep up with this particular group, Ground Up Waterloo and Ramsey and David. So thank you, guys. Thank you, folks. Blessings. All right. Thank you. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.